I can everyone hear me?
At this point, not much excited me more than smoking out the window, catching glimpses of people traversing the block. A busy one-way street. But I needed to change what I had been doing with my time. Subsequently, if I wanted a cigarette, I was required to peel away from a pitiful combination of writing and job hunting, to send a steep and long flight of stairs and perch on a crooked stoop worked by the polarized, polarizing climate, not complex, climate. Tilted and smoking on the stoop brought me too much closer to the obvious and mutual rejection between this city and I. A gargoyle simply does not belong on the sidewalk. When I ventured outside for sandwiches, coffee, or more cigarettes, it seemed like almost every other household in the world was enabled for my advice. Returning from a taxing but ultimately forgettable day, I was stopped from crossing the street to my apartment when suddenly having noticed that my building indeed sported a balcony. Upon assessing the interior in relation to the exterior, I worked out that it was attached to student-teacher's room. No mention of its access was suggested and I was being slapped on the wrist, but why would she? Every time I wanted a cigarette, I would have to walk through her room. She left her door open one day, I peeked in, and I saw that she had deplorably installed a wardrobe in front of the balcony's entrance. I pondered the consequences and considered the possibilities of my persistence of being evicted, of the apartment of flame, of it being my fault, of the loss of furniture, the shame too, of course. But once a year, the sidewalks of residential neighborhoods are flooded with garbage and treasure. Montreal moving day. The date following the expiration of most rental leases, he was an exodus of domestic matter, an annual used furniture free-for-all. This would never work in <laughs> Obstructions are not tolerated unless they prick the skyline, and we cannot accept the old unless it is minted as the new. On this day in Montreal, July 1st, drag pictures are made the following week's garage sale moguls. Certainly, this holds the potential for interiors utterly Frankensteinian or distastefully or distastefully shabby chic. But must this household, my household, repel all routes of the imagination? In my room, the living room and beyond, was a day and a half spent at Ikea. Truthfully, what could be more petty and pathetic than being made morose by a lack of interesting furnishings, furnishing solutions, while others led a life ultimately troubled by aggressively inoffensive tables and chairs? Just go outside, get a job, a life, a latte. <laughs> A month in a smoker in residence, student teacher left for the summer too. She'll be back when I'm gone when the bohemian smog sublimates into the furniture yet to be left for enthusiasts of Western refuse. Refuse. This household is not moving yet, but it was at one point designed entirely to sour sublets. So I recommence puffing away in a homesick malaise, pining for nothing in particular, friends, obviously, familiarity with public transit, I had barely known Vancouver when I left it in haste. My lack of patience found me stranded in certain respects by my impulse. Here, they might say, say la vie, but my mantra was, I'm fucking bored. <laughs> Boredom usually prods people to go outside, but the heat deflated my already meager spirit. I excused myself from the external world 
simply because it was sweltering. In a place that's too hot in the summer, and apparently too cold in the winter, going outside to smoke is reprehensible. I made a mental note. I can't live here unless I can smoke inside. Um, act two. Less than a year prior to getting caught by a student teacher, I was in Burnaby, standing at the top of a short set of stairs in my landlord's home. He invited me into his home because he wanted to ask me a question. He opened the door that usually closed off the stairs that led to my suite from his. At the bottom of the stairs was a second door, and on the other side of that door was a large cabinet I put in front of it for surplus disassociation. Between two doors, this short set of stairs traffics no bodies at all between modest altitudes. A structurally sound but psychologically erased space only trumped in deadness by the interstice of drywall. Drywall. As we both stood at the top of his stairs, he asked me if I smelled anything. He's, his home, he's home, his home, smelled positively <coughs> embalmed like laundry and polished granite countertops or scented garbage bags, likely all of the above. But looming above the stairs, descending into my basement suite, I detected nothing but a rhetorical question. I concluded that he was passively accusing me, attempting to elicit a confession, or awkwardly wasting my time. Because yes, last night, I had smoked a cigarette indoors. I felt it was right with what I was reading. <laughs> An unsent letter. After returning from an evening of socializing, regrettably, in a foul mood. An unsent letter. P. R. Spare. You got high between third and fourth period. I went to find friends with fake IDs to buy me cigarettes, opting for more prosaic transgression. More lawful than yours. I didn't have a brand back then. I just smoked whatever, whomever I could find smoked. No research, no imagination, no taste. I never asked you the name of whatever it was you had. I thought marijuana would ruin you. So we never did get to hold fires in our hands together. We were better at being bad, and me, on my premature moral high horse, got angry at the thought of you in an altered state. You must know how glad I am that we are reconnecting. You must also know that when you asked me to meet you for a drink, I said yes, even though I was content to forget you. As I approached the bar, I realized that I had never consumed alcohol with you despite our youthful badness. It reminded me of a show I went to with some of your friends, why you weren't there, I don't remember, and R had asked me to hold the record he'd purchased because fearful or distrusting of his inebriated candor, thought he would break it or leave it somewhere. Teenage alcohol abuse embarrasses us all, but it is requisite to establishing our limitations. Did I with cigarettes? Did you with smoking weed? You don't seem like a stoner now. You were what I would now endearly refer to as in a band, which I have heard helped you cover some bases. <laughs> when we realized how easy it was to be in a band, most people, oh sorry, when I realized, when we realized how easy it is to be in a band, meet people in bands, date people in bands, run art galleries, publish, own direct things, 
uh, with nothing but initiative dreams and a grasp on Adobe Suite. It is once disillusioning and empowering. We could do great things if every other person around me didn't seem like they were already. I can see, I can't just see you perform anyway and watch the eyes of cute girls fill with romantic fulfillment with you or the next guy behind a pick five strings and a veil, five strings, sorry, and a veil of compassionate testosterone strapped with clumsiness and determination. <laughs> I know I ruined everything and made myself feel immediately better by pretending that you didn't care. I know you did, while others found apathy attractive. If I had told myself you did care, I would be troubled by the fact that we weren't together and trying to figure out the reason. Now, when I asked you to go for a drink, another drink, you answered me with, you'd love to catch up, you'd love to grab a drink. Words are not something I would put beyond you to manipulate, to be cryptic, to withhold and tempt me to force the admission of young love we never got around to talking about. Though you must know I don't love you now. <laughs> what else would, exactly would you love to do? Sex. <laughs> Thank you, Francis. Um, we decided, we never decided to go out of our way for each other and smothered the expectation that something beautiful was on the other side to give but never gave because we thought we deserve the satisfaction of the other person going all the way for the sake of both of our happiness. <laughs> you used to send me crude text messages in the middle of class and then ask me what time it was. <laughs> Though I felt the vibration in my exhilarated jean pocket, I looked... <laughs> read out the time, 11.42 a.m. <laughs> Children have always learned best with zero intention, unaware of consequences. Teasing turned into being a tease to being a slut. Luckily, we weren't around each other for those realizations that have all taken on new meaning since. So I still affectionately remember you as the texter. We were teenagers, but it feels long enough ago that we might as well have been children. This is candy recollection. <laughs> Car, candy recollection. <laughs> she better that line. Um, that's a footnote. <laughs> um, Read the sentence where the footnote was. It felt it felt right with what I was reading, an unsent letter after returning from an evening of socializing, regrettably in a foul mood. I'm sure he smelled that then, though there was nothing to reference 24 hours after the fact of aroma. Saying nothing, I screwed up my face a modest amount and fashioned an expression equal parts unassuming and confused. He then said something about smoke. When people say smoke, everyone refers to smoking kills and never, is something burning? But I prefer to associate it with 
do you want to smoke? Or the gesture of two fingers to one's lips. Smoke. Sir Walter Raleigh had brought smoking to England, but in, by but introducing it, but introducing it to the Elizabethan court would be a contest of surreptitious showmanship. While in the presence of the queen, which smoking was unpopular with, he quietly took out his pipe and began filling it. Wagering her a handful of gold, he said that he could devise a way to weigh the smoke in his pipe, thus devise a way to smoke in the court, devise a way to change the queen's mind. He called upon the court chemist to weigh the difference between his tobacco and his ashes on the chemist's most sensitive scale. En route, from leaves to ashes, Raleigh leisurely smoked his, his pipe holds before the court. Quote, if the present weight of the pipe is subtracted from its weight before I started smoking, the difference must be the weight of that which has disappeared. That is, your majesty, the weight of smoke. End quote. Along with his point, his gold, and the queen's remarks, I have met many alchemists who have let gold go up in smoke, but only you, Sir Walter, have I seen transmute smoke into gold. He sold smoking to the queen almost like a door-to-door -door vacuum cleaner salesman. <laughs> Rowling would have tobacco lobbyists bend the knee, but not my germophobic landlord. So I followed up my face with a prolonged, oh, <laughs> my carefully crafted melodrama, and informed him that it was like this. Yesterday evening, I was smoking with a friend outside of the front door, and it was open so we could hear our music playing from inside, and sorry. <laughs> I thought the cabinet in front of the door would hinder it from wafting upstairs, but I'll be sure to smoke with the front door closed from now on. Yeah. Act 3. When I returned home from Montreal, I wanted to move out of Burnaby. I found another basement suite in a heritage home on Cypress Street, where my landlord's policy on smoking was not at all tacit as they had been before. He resided on the top floor of the house, and in our lease he stipulated that smoking on the property was strictly prohibited, and we would surely be evicted if we crossed the lease and by proxy him. Smoking was an event again, an ordeal, putting on jacket, shoes, slippers at the very least, and going outside, sometimes across the street. A few months into our tenancy, we already conserved a number of officious-looking papers slipped under our front door naked and signed with a defiant stroke of self-importance and a cheap ballpoint blue. These documents were produced so frequently and on a polarizing spectrum of I am entering the suite to inspect the quality of your vacuum cleaner to next time I will evict you all. <laughs> that it gave us anxiety when we saw an errant sheet of paper on the floor in any room of our house. On one occasion, a friend arrived early to get together when no one was home yet, took a cigarette on our steps and waiting. I showed up. A note was produced the next day citing our guest smoker and the approximate time of his violation. While these documents were the effect of legally binding papers, they seemed to be formatted on a basic word processing program and spat out by a small inkjet printer. <laughs> But, <laughs> telling by the way 
small inkjet printer telling by the way words bled rainbow when they came into contact with our entryway on a rainy week. This homemade bureaucracy mirrored the enthusiasm of a child with the recent acquisition of an easy bake oven. <laughs> or, more elegantly, what Diderot referred to as France's national malady, viral mania. During a period of wanton beheadings in France known as the Reign of Terror following the French Revolution, a clerk in the Committee of Public Safety had smuggled thousands of files ordering the execution of enemies of the revolution on their way to a, revolutional, a revolutionary tribunal, effectively preventing an estimated 1,200 lives from the guillotine. After work, this clerk went to the public baths, soaked the documents until they were reduced to pulp, and then launched them in small pellets through the window of the bathing room and into the Seine, as simple as it is bizarre. Though those descriptions, descriptors, are how his actions have been heroicized, heroized, it is also the very definition of the system it undermined, simple as it is bizarre. Our affliction was not smoking on the property or secondhand vacuum cleaners, but our landlord's abundance of time and an obviously unhealthy concern for his assets. A psychological oppression he operated at a cost little more than a trip to Staples. I couldn't drown those notices in the bathtub. Well, for fun I could have, but photocopies. A factor our conspirator clerk didn't have to consider. The sun always shone brighter on the other side of the street. Metaphorically, but also not. Our house was north-facing. On some mornings, I meagerly parked myself on the curb with a fleece throw wrapped around my person, wielding a clumsily large cup of coffee and took a cigarette. In the domain of young families with ergonomic strollers and athletic types with happy dogs, I looked rather derelict by comparison. <laughs> Nobody smokes in Kitsilano, but nobody stares either. It's a community that minds no one else's business and eats really nice vegetables. <laughs> Across the street, looking bitterly at the top floor of my house, I drew nicotine and sunshine and blew smoke in the direction of a trash heap that we would have used for a balcony. That's the end. <laughs> Seemed to me your way of permitting this dull proclamation to progress. 
Well, sometimes I put it in the bowl in my soups, I said, trying to justify the half-full container sitting in my fridge. I don't actually like eating it that much. The look in your eyes was utterly okay then, with the specter of why am I with you? I've said even less remarkable things before, so I kissed you on the side of your lengthy mouth and turned to look out the window again, where an SUV drove up next to the bus, obstructing my view. The event of you packing up not much of everything you own coincided with my acquisition of an e-cigarette. Before moving across the country, you said that we would both have burdens lifted from us. You would finally have the chance to live super minimal, and I would quit smoking. E-cigarettes are not effectively made because they still have cigarette in the name. As the latest talisman to smoking cessation, this misnomer fueled my unreasonable expectation that an e-cigarette would actually be like a cigarette cigarette. I tried it. The way it was held reminded me of how I hold a straw to draw a triple thick milkshake. When I smoked it in restaurants, I was a teenager smuggling a hard beverage disguised as a big gulp into the cinema. I thought, it, I thought of it as everything else but a cigarette. I confess to you that I was willing to resign myself to simulation, but not substitute. While the recently implemented ban in New York argues that the use of cigarettes and e-cigs in public places are par violators of the Clean Indoor Air Act, this guilty by association logic underlines the commitment people make to do or undo their vices. I deny their sameness, but not to defy the conjecture of health officials. You were so kind to indulge my, jo my choice to continue smoking by having one cigarette with me on the balcony, balcony of your finally minimal as Judd apartment. <laughs> with my back to your decent view, I took a casual, a casual stance, following by, followed by a dramatic drag, and asked, "Why can't my apartment be as minimal as yours?" Your apartment is a triumph, an image cessation, and it is settled that I require something to put my eyes and mouth on. Alan Carr's easy way to stop smoking states, first, one must accept that smoking is not a habit, it is a drug addiction. Second, the only way to quit smoking is to never have a cigarette again. This you adapted for your purposes. First, one must accept that images are not a habit, they are a drug addiction. Second, the only way to quit images is to never have an image again. The goal of simpler living, simpler clean, the goal, the goal of living simpler, cleaner, is much more sinister than I thought. A recipe for a do-it-yourself face mask calls for cinnamon, yogurt, banana, and honey. <laughs> I put too much cinnamon or not enough yogurt. Most retail body care products will instruct you to do a test patch on your arm before applying it to your face. This precaution assumes that your arm skin is the same as your chin-septed bridge of your nose and cheek skin. Does this seem right to you? <laughs> Without a warning label and only a rustic mason jar to store the excess face mask, you, you either think you're getting back to something or getting away with something by cheating manufacturer. You're excited and apply the mashed banana, not enough yogurt, honey, and too much cinnamon right onto your face without testing on your arm first. But the too much cinnamon part of this experiment sets your face under the yogurt on fire. <laughs> that was great. Um, what was used to clean up claws the mess? At the party, I don't know anyone. I repeated the yogurt remark to some people I just met for conversation. I think I'm going to stop buying yogurt. <laughs> 
We exchange some anecdotes about yogurt and share other things we'd like to abstain from. Abstain from. I lit a cigarette and offer one to another who identified as a smoker earlier. He smiles and presents his e-cigarette. In the spirit of stopping, he offers me some of that. It could have been taken as condescending. <laughs> I respectfully refuse, which could have been taken as polite. But I just met him, and I don't quite feel comfortable smoking his e-cigarette. <laughs> Now I'm really done. So this is called Sir Walter Raleigh. Okay. Raleigh's head was embalmed and presented to his wife. His body was to be buried in the local church, but was finally laid to rest in St. Margaret's Westminster, where his tomb may still be visited today. It has been said that Lady Raleigh kept her husband's head in a velvet bag until her death. After his wife's death, 29 years later, Raleigh's head was returned to his tomb. That's a quote from Wikipedia. <laughs> I was conceived of noble blood and raised in such a manner that no expense was spared. Some would call this privilege and complain of inequality. But what unites a nation if not its traditions? That being said, there will always exist those who, dissatisfied with their own standing in life, delight in fate's mistreatment of others. To those I say, find pleasure in my fall. Raised in isolation, during my formative years I knew only the estate I inhabited and the green of surrounding fallow pastures. I learned nothing of my mother and saw little of my father whose time was monopolized by the government he served and whose presence was frequently required elsewhere. He would arrive late at night, unannounced, and flee with the following dawn. A genius, they said, mercurial eyewitness. When he inspected me, he could be impatient to the point of vicious exasperation, or else distracted, listening to the reports on my progress without query or comment. Rarely did we interact directly, rarely did I interact with anyone, but for the handful of men that attended to me in my father's stead. And so, as isolation begets ignorance, I was ignorant of worldly matters. And though I was raised by the nation's finest minds, I knew not the eventual purpose they'd envisaged for me. The only certainty was that, at my zenith, I would not be simply great, but a standard to unite my fellow countrymen. <laughs> However, through no fault of my own, I constantly failed to meet my father's expectations. The world's highest mountains were but hillocks to him, and its oceans mere ponds to his expansive intellect, which, though undoubtedly brilliant, flirted dangerously with the boundaries of possibility. 
In his eyes, I was bulky and slow. And as my limitations became all the more apparent, his mood darkened. There was no end to his vexation, to my inadequacies. And I was sure I would remain unfit for the world I had so long desired to explore. Efforts were redoubled, however, and eventually, years behind schedule, I passed my final exams. Without a smile, my father deemed me ready, and one morning soon after, I was taken from the estate, secured under canvas that hid me from the world and it from me. I was habituated to such clandestine treatment, yet unloaded under the cover of darkness and watched by silent guards, I grew fearful desiring what I had never had, a confidant to sit with me in those miserable hours as I waited to learn my destiny. The next day, in front of crowds of millions, I made my debut. The extent of my virtue was immediately apparent in the extreme marvel with which I was received. Tears in every eye told me that already I was great. <laughs> Resplendent in national colours and decorated with insignia, I was presented before the Queen. Her Majesty addressed the nation, condemning it for it, sorry, commending it. <laughs> you bad country. Uh, commending it for its moral fortitude in those times of uncertainty. <laughs> I'm gonna have a little bit of tea. You didn't put, you didn't put any milk in this tea. You left them with the tea, tea, tea bag in and no milk. <laughs> I was born of noble blood, people. All right, where was I? Her Majesty addressed the nation, commending it for its moral fortitude in those times of uncertainty championing the workforce's commitment to collective growth and for their acceptance of recent austerity measures. Tomorrow, we would become a nation renowned for the dependability of its industries and the vision of its technological progress. Unveiled today, I was this glorious future. To rapturous applause, Her Majesty stepped towards me and, leaning in so that only I could hear her whisper, one hopes this doesn't smart. <laughs> she smashed a Jeroboam of champagne across my nose. Thus began my tenure as flagship of the world's most trusted airline and private vessel to the head of our state. I was at that time the most advanced craft in the skies, unrivaled in speed and unparalleled in luxury, recording perfect flight times and surpassing everyone's expectations in fuel economy. <laughs> the envy of all those other powers as I touched down on some foreign airfield um, oh, sorry. The envy of all other powers as I touched down on some other air, foreign airfield, I was inevi inevitably met by hordes of admirers and dazzled by the flash of a thousand cameras. I'll wager I made the front page of every national newspaper on the planet. With my nobility thusly celebrated, the luxury to which I had long been accustomed increased exponentially. Every morning, attendants would come to scrub every inch of my hull so that I, and only I, would gleam even in the dreariest weather. 
I wondered if Her Majesty received such thorough treatment. <laughs> Escorted by elite fighter pilots, I, grew without, I flew without fear of ambush, and with my VIP status, or was it my pin-up good looks, I gained access to skies into which no other could venture. My father, it was assured, would be honoured with our nation's highest accolades. Her Majesty continued to address me as she had at my christening, often on overnight flights when, kept from sleep by the pressures of state, she required the support of a trusted companion. In her private quarters, the Queen would consult me on any number of issues, our interests overseas, the concerning rise in political radicalism, the even more pressing concern of lineage. Cherished for my loyalty, I was nothing if not loyal to my nation of monarch. I soon became privy to her innermost thoughts. When Her Majesty tired, I spoke for her, and if she was unable to attend an auspicious event, I was her delegate. But what, you ask eagerly, of my fall? Having worked so little for the magnificent position I'd rapidly acquired, I failed to recognize the inevitable. Distracted by an insatiable ambition to break even more fantastic records, to become, to become so great that history would never forget me. It was my destiny to fly higher than any other craft. Was I not, after all, my father's son? Not everything he had dreamt of? Not everything the nation had invested its hopes in? At the inquest, and here allow a penitent soul to not dwell on his sins, it was established that I had been flying at an altitude beyond the aviation's authorities' recommended limit, and in preparation for landing, adopted a risky angle of descent. Shifting blame, my pilots accused me of showboating and reckless abandon. With my landing gear suddenly refusing to deploy, they, oh how heroic of them, were forced to perform an emergency landing. Substantiated by black box data, my detractors slandered the reliability of my autopilot features and cast dispersions on my makeup. I was branded impetuous and unreliable, an accident just waiting to happen. Though the landing was successful, so much indeed that I myself barely suffered a graze, a number of my passengers required minor injury, requ received minor injuries requiring hospitalization, including, and here I cannot possibly express the full extent of my regret, my queen. Energy, enemies that had once yapped at my heels now lunged for my throat, and fed prevarications by the most convincing of politicians, the press set out to ruin me. The subtle implication of foul play, of someone having tampered with my autopilot settings prior to takeoff, was taken seriously by a minimal few. Who had the perspicacity to de determine whether a discreet coup was in fact being staged. Who had the time to scrutinize such fine details while the nation, nay the whole world, was faltering, its confidence is failing, and its markets crashing? Naturally, I was grounded with immediate effect, and just imagine the humiliation was taken back to the estate of my youth, hidden once again from the public that had idolized me, their symbol of hope. My father was beside himself when I returned and struggled to endure the disgrace I had brought upon him. Receiving me, his instructions were devious and simple. I was to be taken apart piece by piece and separated into two piles, good or bad. 
The queen's condition deteriorated with mine. Through my so-called recklessness, she suffered a, a, a minor concussion and was flown by a lowly helicopter to a private hospital where she was held in a stable condition. Sensing an opportunity, the usual suspects commenced a cowardly attack against the monarchy, condemning the royal family for its lack of faith in the National Health Service. Her name's on everything, but she don't believe in her own product! <laughs> Egged on by the anti-monarchists, the, uh, the population grew disgruntled and began questioning their founding principles. Taking the nation's temperature and finding it in a state of fever, the royal family acted with uncharacteristic haste and moved Her Majesty to a public hospital in an attempt to win back public sympathy. Photographs were placed in a few dailies still under royal influence of Her Majesty convalescing in an open ward between Joan, 81, in for a hip replacement, and Marion, 52, recently diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. It was too little too late, however. The mechanisms of change had begun and once in motion proved unstoppable, the ancient establishment unable to contain the modern dynamics. The Queen contracted a hospital bug of the sort that had plagued the health service for years, and that was that. Tradition flatlined with Her Majesty. The country mourned as her body was lowered into the ground, but in the manner of relatives awaiting the reading of the will. With no heir to the throne, the great age of redistribution began, and my fate as the downfall of my beloved nation was sealed. On the estate, I was excruciatingly disassembled and inspected in my nakedness. My irreparable parts were subjected to the hellish flames of the same furnaces that had forged me, and the rest were sunk into the bellies of inferior commercial airliners, so that I, who had once transported our head of state and defender of the faith, now orbit the globe, carrying the godless common people. Thus is my exile. When my parts are eventually worn down to the point of failure, I will remain scattered and incomplete, never to return to my homeland, never to receive the burial befitting my rank. Fragmented and hurtling in a thousand directions at once, I remain confined to the upper atmospheres, forever gravity's hostage.
so she's in a very Yeah, 